Well, one of the mantras that we have in our modern age that you've probably heard or you've seen yard signs depicting is the declaration that love is love. Now, this saying has been used by those who advocate for uh, greater tolerance, greater acceptance of departures from traditional ways of understanding family life or gender or sexuality. Now, my goal this morning is, is not to go into depth in the pros and cons of this movement. Uh, that's not what I'm dealing with, but uh, this, this Sunday is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and traditionally it is the time in the liturgical calendar where we focus and process and meditate on the love of God that arrived that first Christmas morning some 2,000 years ago. Now, I bring that up, this, this slogan of love is love, because I would argue that not all loves are created equal. I love burritos, especially the ones that you can get at Chipotle. But does that love that I feel for a burrito equate with the love that I feel for my children or Sarah? I hope not. Or even taking the love that I feel for Sarah, how does that love feel compared today right after 18 years of marriage from that first moment when we said, I do. There's a growth, there's an evolution of that love because love is not static. It's not purely an emotional component of our lives. Now, the ancient philosophers understood this. The Greeks had four different words that were used to represent the various nuances of what we call love. Each of these four words could be translated and are often translated as love in English, but they all mean something different. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to give you a brief overview of it. So the four words, and I'll, I'll put them on the screen. Nope, not that. But are storge, philo, eros, and agape. Storge, which is the first one, is affection. And actually, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, which goes into depth about these. It's, it's very great writing uh, from the, the early 20th century. Um, but storge, it means affection. It's the type of love that you feel for a child or feel for a pet. It's a love that is familiar. Even when two people begin that process of falling in love, it's usually through affection of something, right? a, a feeling of something of togetherness, like a, a location. Maybe it's a college that you both attended. Maybe it, it, it's, it's common ground, that the alignment of your faith background, perhaps. Affection is about building a life together. It's about comfort. The second one is philo, friendship. Think of the city of Philadelphia. Philo, the city of love, Philo of brother, Adelphos. Now, while there is a need to have a shared activity like a hobby, friendship really is more about belonging. It's about having someone with you on the journey of life. Thirdly, we have eros, romance. This is passion. It's what you might call chemistry. Where philo philo is about walking shoulder to shoulder, right? You're focusing on a similar horizon. 
right? You're both looking towards the same destination, but, but eros is more about being face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Lastly, we have agape. C.S. Lewis translates it as charity. I don't, I don't know if there's a, a better word for it, but it's, if you've spent any time in the church, it's probably a familiar word for you, because agape is the predominant word used in Scripture to express that love of God. This is a divine love, a love that is unconditional. C.S. Lewis says that the previous three loves are a training ground for this one, because what really separates agape from the previous three is that it is considered a gift-based love. Affection, friendship, Romance, they're all considered need-based versions of love because there are conditions attached to them. Now, now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it is wrong or bad to have boundaries in our love. For example, if you think of philo, if you think of friendship, you're going to want reciprocation from your friends. If all of your friendships are one-sided, that you're the only one putting any effort into that, You're not going to maintain those friendships for long. You're going to burn out eventually. In Eros, you want a commitment where you long to look upon the other with desire and you want to be desired in return. There's not anything disordered about need-based love. But agape is on a different plane as gift-based. As I stated already, it's unconditional. It's giving something with no strings attached This is the love that we see most clearly in the incarnation of Jesus Christ when he was born in Bethlehem. When we discuss the love of God, this agape, this selfless love is what is in view. Now, before we look at God's love communicated through the birth of Jesus Christ, I want to do a real quick dive into God's love as revealed in the Old Testament. And the reason I want to do this is too often in the community of God, we miss out on this continuity of the the nature of God between the two Testaments. I've heard, often heard folks say that they feel this disconnect between these two revelations, as if God revealed in the Old Testament is just full of wrath and anger, whereas the New Testament reflects this characteristics of love and grace. But we believe in a God that there's a fancy word that, that theologians use call his immutability, meaning that he doesn't change. God doesn't change his nature, then we need to recognize that this love that we see through Jesus Christ and uh, in, in the arrival of Jesus is also present in his nature in the Old Testament. So here are some of the promises of God's commitment of his love towards his people. It can give us a, an idea of the God that we serve who is passionate for us. Isaiah 54:10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Hills and mountains may be blown to bits, but God's steadfast love will not be moved to the side. I mean, just in case that is not quite cosmic enough in scale for you, I, I, I love, doesn't speak directly, explicitly about his love, but his commitment 
I love Jeremiah 33, 20 to 21. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with my servant David may be broken so that he won't have a son to reign on his throne. Foreshadowing, we know to be about Jesus. Unless we can find a way to break the trajectory of the way of the earth orbiting the sun, then God's promise of reigning through the Messiah of David's line is assured. Right? These passages show the firmness of God's love that he is committed to his people. Summarized by the conclusion of Psalm 136, this is verse 26, give thanks to the Lord of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. God's love is eternal. Now you might say, yes, I know that God's displays that he's committed to us in the Old Testament, but his disposition often feels like it's standoffish or that it's cold with his people. Something I'm sure you've heard me say before is that love is more than an emotion, right? Because love is an act of the will. And this is the characteristics we see of God's love in these passages, that God's willingness, that God is choosing to be committed to us. But while love is more than just an emotion, it is never less than that. A spouse might be committed to their partner, But if every interaction is cold or indifferent, we wouldn't consider that love. Because love includes that joy, that delight over the object of your love. Try this passage on for size. This is uh, Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing, right? God rejoices over us with gladness and song. For whatever reason, the image that comes to mind is that scene in the movie Elf where Buddy, played by Will Ferrell, first sees his dad. His dad thinks it's, you know, this kind of weirdo dressed as an elf is a a Christmas, you know, singing telegram for Christmas. And Buddy just puts his feelings to a random tune, singing about how much he loves his dad. He doesn't care that the whole thing is incredibly awkward for his dad and the other employees. All that he's focusing on in that moment is that object of his affection, his dad that he's finally found. You know, I'm sure you all know, maybe you are those, those moms and dads who like to sing obnoxiously in public with the intent to embarrass your kids. Belting out a tune, doesn't care. That, you know, the kids are standing there watching with horror. A parent doesn't do that because they dislike their children, but in a weird way, it's an extension of their love for them, their playfulness for them, right? God sings over us with song. God delights in us with song. The last passage I want to share in the Old Testament is one of the key texts of the, the Hebraic formation of who God was, right? In, in this interaction Right? Moses asks to see the glory of God. And God says, I'm going to hide you in this crack in the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. You can't see my face, but I'm going to pass by you in all my glory. And you could see kind of the tail end. You know, you could see it's like, you know, watching a, a plane go by and you, you have that, the trail that they leave. Moses is able to see that. And as, as uh, God passes by, 
Notice in this passage, yes, it describes the anger and punishment of God, but notice how it is completely overshadowed by his love and grace. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passes by Moses and proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So yes, if we want to see God as a God of anger and a God of wrath, we can find that there are limits to God's patience. There are times that the Scriptures tell us that God's judgment will come, but that judgment will be short-lived. Compare that three to four generations compared to the thousands of generations that God shows His love towards. The love of God that we see in Jesus is not some new wrinkle in the character of God but is fully on display throughout the entirety of Scripture. But let's move to the incarnation of Jesus, right? That vulnerable baby lying in the animal feeding trough. Right? We see in that God's greatest commitment, His greatest love of humanity. Jesus tells us in that concise summary of the gospel found in John 3.16 that God loved the world in this way that He gave us His Son. You see that true love, that agape, divine love of God, unconditional. It's not mere sentimentality. This is the season where we have 24-7 those cheesy Christmas movies about finding love on the Hallmark Channel. You know, a few years, it might have even just been last year we were visiting Sarah's parents. My in-laws were joking about the formula that their movies follow. All of them. You, you know, you've got a clash of cultures. You've got a, a big city protagonist in a small town or vice versa, a small town person in a big city. The two leads don't like each other at first, but then due to some obstacle, they start to see each other in the new light in the final scene. It always has to end without fail with that first kiss that they share. Right? The, the Washington Post actually has a Mad Lib that you can create your own Hallmark movie special. Now, these movies have a formula because they work for us. They pander to our emotions. They are wildly successful. But God's love is not just some predictable, sentimental pattern. God's love requires sacrifice, as we see in the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus leaves his place of privilege and prestige to take on human form in order to be near us. Jesus took his experience, which was devoid of suffering, and became enmeshed with the suffering of the world. Jesus experiences hunger, pain, betrayal, all so that he can be physically near to those whom he loves. Our understanding of this love culminates with his suffering on the cross. John tells us in the first le- his first letter that Jesus came so that he might be a propitiation for our sin. It's a fancy word the Bible uses to describe an offering, something that disarms the powers and consequences for our wrongdoing. Right? Romans 5 tells us that God shows us his love that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. 
While we were enemies, it is God who took that first step of reconciliation. God's love is demonstrated through the birth of Jesus that that infant, born of lowly means, came into the world to save his people from their sins. That baby was born to die because God loved us and he gave. Now, just so that we don't mistake ourselves, God is not obligated to do this for us. I know, you know, at least for myself, being in church for a long time, it's, it's easy to start to like presume upon the sacrifice of Christ as if like somehow God had to do this. Like, I mean, there was no other decision that God was going to make, but he didn't have to do it. He didn't. He, he didn't. And in that willingness of his own f- free will, amplifies the extension of that love. Sky Jatani uh, put it this way. It was actually, he wrote about this in one of his devotionals this past Monday. He said, and I quote, compulsion is the enemy of affection. For love to be received as genuine, its recipient must know, perhaps only on a subconscious level, that the love offering it could have withheld, that the, excuse me, the one offering it could have withheld his love instead. It is precisely the freedom to not love that gives love its power. And it's the surprise of another's love that magnifies our joy when receiving it. God didn't give out of compulsion. He didn't have to give, but he gave willingly out of his love for us. But I'd say there's another element another characteristic of that love. Something I know many of you have heard me say before is that God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. God meets us where we are right now in all the brokenness and all the sin. He's accessible with where we are, but his love calls us to action It leads to change. God in his love is committed to our growth. I mean, think about it this way. I I would not be a very loving parent to let my children do whatever they wanted to do whenever they wanted to do it. Most parents don't allow their kids to eat candy for dinner or body slam their siblings, you know, trying to mimic some WWE from the the top of the table. These are behaviors that are not good for them. Part of parenting is helping children learn healthy habits, even when our kids whine and complain and fight every step of the way against it. We brush our teeth every morning and not night, not because we just like love doing it. I don't know, maybe you've fallen in love with brushing your teeth, but we don't want cavities to develop in their mouths. We place limits on screen time because life is more than just about being entertained. The things that we might or our children might want to do aren't necessarily always good for them. In the same way, God has a deep love for us, but there are habits that are ingrained in us that might need to change. Habits that aren't healthy, aren't good for us. You know, maybe we're, we're overly fixated on money and God needs to, to loosen our tightened fist over every penny that we earn. Maybe we base our identity and worth off of what other people say. And God helps us to reorient our lives around him. 
our identity on Him. Maybe we're caught in that cycle of addiction, whether it be drugs, whether it be Netflix, whether it be online shopping, whatever it is that's kind of pinging those dopamine receptors in your brain, and God helps us learn that there are healthier ways to deal with boredom or deal with apathy. I can confidently say that God is committed to each and every one of you this morning, but that commitment means that God is at work in your lives, changing you from the inside out by the power of His Holy Spirit. But that's not always going to feel comfortable. In fact, it might be downright painful or downright frustrating. But God's commitment, God's love for us, means that He's going to keep chipping away those parts of us that aren't good for us, that aren't a reflection of His goodness. Now, remember those, those four types of love that I started with. It's important to acknowledge that this love that God has for us, as I said, is that agape love. It's gift-based, not need-based. And the reason that that is important is because God's affection, God's favor for you towards us is not based upon how we respond. If we're having a difficult time with our growth, God doesn't throw up His hands in exasperation and just say, just go do it yourself. He doesn't chide you saying, like, this is so easy. Why are you having such a hard time getting this? The love of God propels him to give with no strings attached. It's truly unconditional love. This is, I think, what Paul meant when he said this in Romans 8, 38 to 39. He says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that is able to keep us from God's love. Whether we're a hot mess or not, all I can think about is, is you know, the, the, the classic uh, by Marvin Gaye, ain't no mountain high enough. God's saying to keep me from getting to you, babe. God is committed to us, and we can't, we can't screw that up. Let's begin to now try to close this by bringing it home to us. As followers of Jesus, I can confidently trust in the love of God, right? That love that was shown through Jesus' arrival in the manger, a love that continues to work on our behalf for our good and his glory, but having been recipients, if we have received that love, do we now have a responsibility to it? So something I want you to consider this week How might you model your love after the love of Jesus Christ? Remember, I said not not all loves are created equal. This is hard. This is a challenge. God's love was not mere sentimentality, but was marked by sacrifice. Who are those whom you profess to love, and are you following in that path of Jesus as you seek and attempt to love them? I would say probably the most famous uh, Bible passage on love is found in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. It says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy and boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, every time you see that word love appear in English, it is that word. It's translating that divine word, that gift-based love of agape. If we are meant to reflect the love of God to the broader world, can we truly read a passage like that with a straight face? Love is patient. Are you patient? I mean, that might be a full stop for many of us, that we're not patient and we're not embodying love. But let's say for the sake of argument that we are patient. Is our patience a gift to someone? Or is our patience in our patience, do we expect to be, that to be returned back with us, right? I'm only going to be patient with you if you're patient back with me. What about those who aren't returning it in kind? If not, God would say that's not love. Love is kind. Are you kind? Are you kind to those who are unkind to you? Love does not envy or boast? Are you content with the things that God has given you, or are you always just trying to one-up your, your friends or co-workers? You know, are you content with, a, with, I don't know, an outdated iPhone 11, or do you need to be the first one to have that iPhone 14? Love doesn't insist on its own way. Right? Do you live in I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine kind of world, or are you willing to give of yourself to others? Love is not irritable or resentful, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, rejoices in the truth, endures all things. Passages like this are regularly read at weddings. And in those times where we feel good, we feel positive, everybody's happy. But as I read a passage like this, it's a checklist of where I am regularly failing. It's evident that I have a lot to learn about how I love others. Remember, God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. Even in our failure to live up to his standards of love is an opportunity for our change. I don't want you to read a passage like that and be like, man, I stink. Woe is me. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to go to God in confession and repentance. Yep, I goofed again. I lost my cool, I flipped my lid, I uh, flipped the bird. I don't know what it is that I did. God, I need your patience. I need your kindness. I need you to change my heart so that I can be content with what I've got. All of these things are opportunities for us to change, to invite God to change us so that we can be better repositories of God's love, to serve others with the overflow of that love. And so this morning, as we reflect on the manger, as we reflect on the the arrival of Jesus, we see the love of God. This covenantal love, this agape love. I love the way uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones defines it in her Jesus Storybook Bible as quote, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Because God loved us, He gave. He gave us His Son, born in Bethlehem, born to set people free from the bondage of their sin, born ultimately to give His life as a ransom for ours. 
If this is the pinnacle of love, may we learn to live our lives in line with that. Love that requires sacrifice for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of God. But this is hard to do. Here are some things for us to reflect on this week. Can you identify relationships? This is really just processing that, the different types of love, because I think it's helpful to understand that, like I said, not all love is created equal. You feel differently for different people in your lives. Can you identify relationships where you pursue each of the four definitions of love? I have them listed there. Affection, friendship, romance, and charity. And maybe as you inventory, that would be a good way to kind of think through, okay, what, what does this mean? Like, what, what do I relish in that kind of component of love with this particular person or that particular person? Here's this, uh, this kind of continuity of, of, of the love of God. Do you, do you see a connection? Do you see a continuity between that the love of God is displayed in the Old and New Testaments? Why or why not? So just kind of, again, inventorying why you might feel a certain way about that and trying to, because uh, again, I would argue that there is that continuity, there is that similarity. And lastly is this uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. Meditate every day this week on 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. And as you read that, I would, you know, putting it through this litmus test of it's not just about, yeah, I have good, you know, positive, uh, feel-good feelings for people, but what does it mean to be patient and to be kind and to be steadfast and enduring in our love? And so as you read that, I'm sure that there are going to be places where you acknowledge, ah, man, I'm not living up to this. So what is one component of love that you're failing? Again, not to beat yourself up, not to self-flagellate, but instead to invite God to bring change. You know what, this week I'm going to focus on patience, or I'm going to focus on my envy, or I'm going to focus on whatever, whatever it might be. And each day go and say, like God, confession, repentance, not just pull myself up by the bootstraps like, all right, I got to try harder in, in this area. But Jesus, I need your patience. I need your kindness. I need your goodness. All right, let's pray. Lord, we see and know your love through the arrival of Christ. As this week, as we prepare, maybe opening the last doors in our Advent calendar or uh, counting down the days to Christmas where we are excited to open presents and, you know, give gifts to one another out of because we love them. May we acknowledge this link between love and giving, but that that giving is not, the giving that you gave, Lord, is not just about what do I get in return, but you gave of yourself unconditionally with no strings attached. May you cultivate that same uh, generosity in us as we seek to love others the way that you have loved us. In Christ's name, amen.